0: You're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast, conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Toronto. Welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. My name is Tasso Sarampalos. This is uh, the last episode of the season, season two. This is the last episode of this academic year. Uh, and sadly, this is also the last episode that I get to co-host with uh, Malcolm Davis. Malcolm, Indeed. hello again for the, for the last time, at least in the podcast. Yeah. And uh, I'm happy that uh, we're going to be talking about topic, a matter in academia that we're both very passionate about, namely the well-being of PhD students and the way that uh, they belong in the academic community. I know this is very uh, important to you. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah,
1: so I'm I'm writing a I helped write a report
0: on the topic
1: of the well-being of PhD students, and I think within th- that work I saw that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the PhD in within the the PhD community here at the university, and I thought it would be a great um, this would be a great platform to discuss it, and I think the best way to do that is to talk to PhD students. So today we're welcoming two lovely guests in Marie and. Uh, Nina Schwarzbach, and I would like them to tr- introduce themselves because I think that's the best way to represent yourself. So um, I'll give the floor to you first, Nina.
2: Thank you. And thank you for pronouncing my name very <laughs> well. <laughs> um, yeah, I am Nina. I'm a PhD student now already for around two years, a bit more than two years, which is always uh, always going very, very quickly. And um, my PhD topic is basically about, the. Um, deci- it's about Um, the interaction between science and practice. So it's about the scientist-practitioner gap in psychotherapy. And apart from that, I I also, with the other guest, Marie, we have a blog which talks about, it's called Growing with Academia. And it talks about, we started it in the research master in order to rant a little bit about the stress levels that we have and about what we think is wrong in the system. Uh, We continued that, even though it's a bit less frequent now. Yeah, and also otherwise, I think, um, as well as Marie, which uh, she's also going to tell you, um, I'm quite active, like, and with regards to, I also did a board position where I actually organized events for PhD students, and I'm also in another board. I think we're in a lot of boards. I'm also (laughs) in an educational board for my grad school, and yes.
1: Ah, Thank you.
3: Yeah, I'm doing my PhD at the Faculty of Behavioral and Social Sciences in Sociology. Also a bit more than halfway through my PhD, going always quicker than you think, actually. And yeah, as Nina already mentioned, we're writing a blog together uh, in which we reflect a little bit on our academic work. And a topic that, that has been coming back frequently there is, I think, well-being and mental health. And another thing that I do related to PhD well-being is also a board position on the board of uh, PNN. That's the PhD Network Netherlands, so the association for all PhD students. And since this year, they actually have a new board position specifically dedicated to uh, well-being. And uh, I'm filling that one at the moment.
1: Ah, Thank you. that's a good place to start actually because i think nina um you kind of mentioned you mentioned that um you, you mentioned well-being but then also mental health and i thought it would be good to start by maybe talking a bit about the the term well-being because there's so many definitions for it um and i have in doing my reading i saw that there were a few um authors who separated health or mental health from from the the term well-being So I think before we dive a bit more into the topic, I'd like to discuss that a bit. What are, what is everyone's thoughts on that? Like, do you, is well-being a part of health or do we see it as something that exists on its own that should be paid attention to separately?
3: I don't think that you can separate the two actually, Mm -hmm. because I mean, yeah, well-being in my view is always going a little bit more into the let's say, positive side. And when you talk about mental health, you often start to talk about uh, ill mental health, so mm. mental disorder. And then well-being is, let's say, the more uh, healthy continuum of it and, while well, maximizing your mental health. Mm. so And, o- of course, by definition, it's therefore connected to your health because <laughs> mental and physical health are so interconnected as well. Yeah.
1: Do you have any thoughts, Nina? that?
3: Yeah, before this episode, I actually Googled what
2: (laughs) PhD well-being is, and it said something that resonated with me, which was also it's the entity of physical, mental well-being. And I think there were even some other things like Mm. financial, which is maybe also relevant to this. And I agree, and I don't really think that there's a difference between PhD well-being and any other person's well-being. But of course, and I think that's also your (laughs) uh, research a little bit, that some things are a bit challenging for the well-being of phd students that might not be so in other professions
1: yeah and maybe to continue we can maybe discuss a few of those things i know in um being part of part of my internship is was really like looking at the data on this um, at the university and seeing what phd students have to say about this i think one thing that did come up which is also mentioned in literature a lot is that you know a lot of times it didn't feel like this should be here so that you felt like uh, imposter syndrome. As P. S. D. students yourself, did did that ever? Was that a big part of it for you uh, towards the beginning, or even now to a degree? <laughs> how much <laughs> I don't know. How much we <laughs> want to talk about this, but yeah. if we can just touch on
3: it, it's very interesting. Uh, you start with this topic because I think our last blog post, uh, um, mm-hmm. mainly written by Nina, uh, is on this topic. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that post, Nina.
2: Yeah, I've written a post which is called something like "The Devil on Your Shoulder." Because I, I kind of uh, yeah I made a little puppet for this imposter syndrome, um, and I very openly wrote about what it tells me every day. <laughs> um, in terms of you know like you're there quarter past nine and it starts telling you, oh my god, <laughs> you're such a loser why you're here <laughs> it's so late even though the floor is empty right but you're still telling that to yourself and. Yeah, and I it started out with a little bit, um, with a paper that I've, or oh, that I'm still writing, actually. <laughs> um, which, basically, I planned it out all very well, in my opinion, and then things didn't go as planned, and so I needed to change the planning. And then there were a lot of thoughts, like, oh my God, you should have known that. And, imposter-wise, like, you're here as the expert, so people trust you on being the expert and now you need to change your planning. And that was the beginning when I was like, yeah, why are we even talking like this to ourselves? Because I know that many people do it and especially PhD students. And why more PhD students maybe do it than other people is, well, you do still feel like you need to earn your place, I guess, because... You just started, and all the scientists have their PhDs already. And yeah. a PhD is so far away. I mean, it's four years, but still, it feels so far. You need to write this whole thing. You need to do all these studies. You need to collaborate, and you need to do so many things. So I think you're very vulnerable then to feel these things and to hear these. And you're getting. And I think another thing is that you're getting, especially at the beginning, not really a lot of positive feedback in a sense of like my supervisors give me a lot of positive feedback, and I really want to say this there <laughs> really, but like you face rejections, you d- finishing something itself takes so long. <laughs> so basically the first year you don't really get like this yeah, one step further in your <laughs> academic journey. You don't really have that. Mm. So um and there's a lot of comparison, which is basically I don't know, it's yeah. also imposter yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe something? I can
3: add a bit to that because I In my PhD, I'm a little bit in between departments. I'm doing work that is a little (laughs) bit um, sociological. So I'm sitting in the sociology department, but not so much. Um, And also a bit clinical psychology and methods and statistics. And uh, every time I joined uh, lab meetings uh, that were more statistics-heavy or methodology-heavy in my grad school... Uh, imposter syndrome Mm. is hitting majorly because my research is more applied and when people start to talk about formulas in detail I always need that little extra step to follow Um, and yeah I mean what I realized now um, in my third year is that I cannot know each of these models that they're talking about because it's mostly new models that they developed so maybe the person that's presenting is an expert because that's the only thing they're doing but uh, all the other people in the audience are not so it's really yeah but it took me it took me those 2 years to get there in the beginning i was just sitting there thinking oh uh, apparently I'm I'm not smart enough for the statistics uh, department. I should stay with the clinical people more. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But
2: I I have exactly the same as you. So I'm also in between two departments, and it's and then I'm also at a grad school where most people come from like philosophy and history. And then it's also like of course I I cannot repeat a philosophy study like and I cannot be at the same level, but still. I don't know and recently I was also at the qualitative research method uh, qualitative research conference which was really lovely but there you're also sitting in front of a lot of people there in theory of psychology and then I'm trying to do the same thing kind of but I'm of course very <laughs> bad at it and then you're yeah I don't know but uh, on the other hand I noticed this for me what's very healing in this is that I see the same thing in my students and that my students for example today I had a meeting with a master thesis student and she was like yeah, with presentations, I'm always so scared and I always think that all the people in the audience know it better than me. And I'm like, no, you're the expert on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're the expert on your topic. So, um, but, I al- by, but I do really understand these insecurities. <laughs>
0: you say that um, you take <coughs> reassurance that your students also exhibit um, similar emotions and uh, similar behaviors. Do you think that uh, the professors in your department and your faculty uh, uh, feel differently?
2: Uh, about this? No, I don't. I'm not sure. Well, I do think. Um, I mean, I'd, uh, l- let me say that my. St- I think my students do not think that I exhibit these things to a huge d- degree before I tell them. So I think that's actually I wrote this p- point down also that this is one of the m- main points for me to talk to people about your insecurities and especially talk to senior people about your insecurities because. Then, they say th- then they're Then they like, oh, no, of course we also have this. <laughs> yeah. But most of them, ba- yeah, okay, I think it gets better. I do think for most people it gets better. But it's also just human to have these insecurities. And maybe then this, that people mostly don't talk about it is the biggest problem, I don't know.
3: Yeah, what helped me actually tremendously um, was that my uh, daily supervisor, who's developed models herself, Um, admits her insecurities quite regularly in meetings so she she always asks uh, when when there is a difficult technical presentation oh uh, could you maybe go over that slide again i really didn't understand this and that really helped me in accepting okay well everybody uh, has uh, some difficulties understanding something sometimes we cannot be the expert in everything
2: Yeah, and uh, and for example, mm, like whatever, even like if I give lectures or if I have just like uh, if I'm just um, doing some work groups or so, people always give me the feedback. It's so nice that you say if you don't know something, and Mm. that always makes me wonder how much do I say that I don't know stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's also useful. It's useful feedback, and we should talk openly about these insecurities.
1: Yeah, I was thinking. Like when you started, because you said it took a while, Marie, before you started to feel that way. Do you feel like if it was communicated to you more often in the beginning, that this would have changed? Or do you really think you just needed that time until you could feel like you weren't an imposter?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think I needed that time uh, to also find a little bit my research lines Mm. and what I want to do and what what I am good at, so what I'm contributing to the field. And the more my confidence in that increased. Yeah, the, the less the imposter feelings came, yeah. I guess. Because, yeah, I then I could say, okay, maybe I I cannot uh, come up with a new model, but I actually developed this really useful method. And, and patients tell me it helps them a lot. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, and I wanted to touch uh, on the topic of workload because that's something that comes up a lot. Some in, in the report that I was involved in, um, some some PhD candidates indicated that they often feel like the workload is too much for what they're there for, and that could be specific to their faculty. I'm, I'm not sure um, because this was anonymous, so a lot of the times you don't know exactly which faculty the person was from. But there were a few, a, a good few, who said, "Hey, um, we're actually not paid as much, for example, as maybe a full time staff member who's doing similar work, but they're doing." Much more work, or just as much work as that person. So I just wanted to touch on that. Um, maybe we don't have to go too much into it, but about workload of PhD students and how that really affects your your mental health and how you maybe manage it or could manage it. And I think that's a good thing to discuss in a in a discussion on this.
3: Yeah, I think it's a little bit hard to generalize because workload is not always even. Mm-hmm.
2: And and comparable.
3: And comparable, yeah. It really, um, when you do a PhD, projects are so different from each other. Um, And also the kind of tasks that you need to do are very different. Uh, So for me personally, the uh, period preparing uh, data collection and collecting data was very, very busy. While periods uh, where I can focus mostly on writing and analysis are a little bit uh, less busy. But overall, I hear um, from a lot of people that they are struggling, especially with uh, workload that comes from all kinds of different sources, especially for people who have to teach a lot. Combining teaching and uh, research is challenging. I have a scholarship uh, PhD position, so I technically, well, not required to teach. And I try to also uh, stick to that, that I don't do teaching because I'm not paid for that. So I guess in that sense, my workload is uh, manageable because I set these very uh, strict boundaries with that. Hmm.
0: Can I follow up on this and ask you... Uh, Both, but um, uh, Marie, for now, what your definition of a PhD is. How do you understand a PhD uh, in all kinds of ways? Um, First of all, is it a degree or is it a job? This is a particularly uh, thorny, I suppose, issue in recent years and especially for this country where traditionally PhD programs have been considered jobs uh, or have been paid and uh, uh, recognized as jobs. But of course, in the, in the academic world, they're also considered training and they're also considered a degree and um, all of this. So matters of whom is the position for come into it. What kind of degree of independence do you have come into it? Um, uh, what are you supposed to be doing? So I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about this, this, uh, the clarity of this.
3: Yes, so for me and also definitions that I've heard uh, talking to other people is that the PhD is basically the pathway towards becoming an independent researcher. So some level of independence is assumed and I guess that independence increases over the years because ideally you in the end want to end up in a position where you are able well, to do your research independently. But yeah, I, s- I see as well what you're saying that... Um, PhDs are in a little bit weird in-between position because we are also still learning. And at the moment, this uh, distinction between scholarship PhDs and employed PhDs there, it's coming up a lot because it is kind of artificially said that um, scholarship PhDs are more student-like because they do not have this mandatory teaching component. However, in practice, they often do teach. And also, if you think about uh, becoming an independent researcher and having career prospects after your PhD, you do need that teaching experience. So, ideally, teaching is part of the PhD. So And then you then it would come back to being a staff member.
0: Is this g- uh, lack of clarity in the identity of what the task involves? So, I l- let me say that I... I I mirror your understanding of what a PhD is that indeed defining it in terms of whether it's a student position or a paid or a, or a, a job let's say I- is not the most productive way to think about it but indeed it is a pathway to becoming an independent uh, investigator academic investigator and therefore from that point of view as you say teaching is a valuable thing because in the marketplace of becoming an independent researcher an independent academic I should say um, teaching experience is very valuable. Is this vagueness? Is this lack of clarity? Is this um, is this um, yeah lack of clarity in the way that a PhD is understood or talked about? Does it add to to the um, to the difficulties of doing this job in a in <laughs> in a fulfilling and calm way?
2: Mm. I I think so, yeah. I do think so, especially also when we started our PhD, there was so much variety in how much information, for example, people would receive. I remember my supervisor sent me this, start your PhD guide, but I've talked to other people and I think nobody has ever seen this guide, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's something and... Yeah, I also like I never talked to anyone. I think that's the first time I thought about what a PhD is. <laughs> <laughs> of course I know it's a degree and I know it's like like a train it should be a training to be a researcher, but I never questioned it kinda. Of.
1: So you never had like a full definition in mind, no. you just thought this is okay.
2: No, but also, I mean, we come from the, we both come from the research master, (laughs) which Mm. is kind of a bit of a hamster wheel, uh, which directly goes into the PhD. Mm. So also, I mean, we talked about this a lot, maybe if we would have, at least I think I might have questioned doing a PhD, if I would have thought about it longer, let's put it like this.
1: Would you say like just your passion for research is what just kept you going and that's why you've? you kept going on that path or was it something else that really because i'm just interested in then if you didn't have like a some kind of a definition in mind if it was just oh this is the path we're on this is going well i'm interested in this let me just keep going if that's what kind of had you
2: well, yeah, I, do, oh, I also want to say something about work pressure in a and <laughs> <a minute>, <laughs> workload, I mean. Um, but because it's related, I think that the personality of people that start a PhD, which is very similar to the personality of the people that start a research master, <laughs> is just like, um, first of all, everybody really loves research. I don't think I know people in a research master, for example, that say like, oh, I really don't like research. So, um, And they're all very motivated, very curious. They all really want to do stuff. The thing is, and I think like this intrinsic motivation sometimes gets very much challenged by the pressures that are put on you, and it becomes very extrinsic. You become very overworked, and then... So when I started my PhD, I don't know what <laughs> kept me going there, but now like that it all calmed down a little bit, I am really happy, and I did rediscover also through the stress my passion for the research. I think you want to add something?
3: Yeah, maybe a little bit of context in how we, uh, so to say, ended up in this PhD position that we are in. So we indeed followed the research master. And then uh, at the end of the research master, we had the opportunity to hand in a proposal for a PhD position, what kind of research we would want to do. And of all those applications, I think four or five were... In
2: our year, it was five, I think.
3: Yeah, were given a scholarship. So that's why it was this very, let's say, natural transition from the research master to the PhD, working uh, with people that you've already worked with during research master projects most of the time, and then, well, basically going on with work that you've already been doing.
2: And if I may add something to also this transition. So in the research master, it's also, so it's a highly competitive program. And in the beginning, you're told, OK, there's five spots for you guys so uh, you better I don't know do your best to um, secure one of these and one of them uh, one of the criteria that you're evaluated upon is extracurricular activities so that is why we like I already taught during the research master we all did like some research assistant work but apart from that we all also were on it and all we all <laughs> meaning the two of us <laughs> were part of different committees and different uh, and did so many things which stayed with us which is also why in the beginning i stressed this a little bit we're still so much involved Sometimes and my supervisors, like recently I I told them, like, yeah, um, I applied for another position (laughs) and I'm invited for an interview. I'm really, really sorry. And they're like, oh, Nina, don't take on another project, please. (laughs) But what I want to say is that PhD students, I think, are also naturally drawn to doing a lot of things, but that's because they're also really motivated. So they want to, they want to, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, but I feel like we all want to change the world for the better a little bit. And then we also want to do that in, for example, like Marie policy positions or like I did, I organized events for PhD students, which makes the workload hard to estimate because we don't only do our work. And for example, with the teaching, one more sa- thing. I'm very sorry, but like mm-hmm. I'm also I'm teaching actually because which is something we have thought about <laughs> because as <laughs> Marie thinks a little bit more, correct me if I'm wrong. That as a scholarship students, you really should also stay on your right not to teach because otherwise they like the system keeps in place. But I was like okay, but I want to have the the experience of supervising students, and I have found another. I actually I'm now teaching also outside of the university, which is for me a way to gain uh, to earn extra money and to. You know, not support the system. But mm. um, just again, the workload of the PhD itself is very undefined and very varied and non comparable. But we also all do a lot of other things.
3: It's interesting that you question or that you say these things may not be part of the PhD because I feel like they are part of the PhD. I mean, I think nowadays the PhD is a lot more than just the research you're doing. Because it is this path towards becoming an independent academic, and academics do all these kinds of things. So if you talk to any um, professor, they will say they're on uh, five boards as well. They are maybe yeah, an editor for a journal. They maybe um, do some outreach work or yeah, I don't know. True. That's so not specific to PhDs. Yeah. So
0: I think maybe to, to sort of recap all of this indeed it seems that you're talking about um, and uh, I don't mean to, to end the, the episode I'm just uh, recapping this particular <laughs> section of it um, I, I the, there's an intersection between the, the very undefined nature of what it is that academic work is because it intersects with policy it intersects with uh, science communication and public engagement it intersects well, I mean it doesn't just intersect it is teaching it is research it is thinking about societal problem, it is engaging with societal problems, and essentially it is um, all-encompassing and undefined. You are to define what your work is. Yeah. So that's one aspect. The other aspect that you mentioned is this arm race, um, or arms race, of um, uh, that has developed in the, in the fact that it is a very competitive field. There are more and more people entering academia as undergraduate students, therefore as research master students, therefore as PhD students, but fewer positions as you climb the, the, the career ladder, let's say, which means that more and more, you know, there's the, there's the stereotype of my, my supervisor 20 years ago wouldn't even have survived for one year with a CV that they had back then, and this just keeps happening decade after decade, every time you go back 10 years ago, you will see that for the same position, the output, the amount of work, etc. was just a lot, lot less. So that's one aspect. And then there's the other aspect that you all mentioned, which is this identification with the work. It's not just an undefined type of work, but we also personally identify with the products of our work. It isn't just a job. It isn't just well i go and create a product i develop a machine i sell something whatever it is we are the thing that we are creating and therefore this uh, idea of imposter syndrome is um, is hardly a surprise and it's a uh, it's a big thing in academia it doesn't i mean it does change as you as you stay longer and longer but sometimes it just increases because as you said the demands also increase the the your um, uh, there is there is, uh, there is this ladder that is almost never-ending that you could be climbing. And at some point, you're going to find your natural limits in terms of skills, in terms of interests, in terms of strengths, in terms of uh, resources, in terms of um, whatever it is that... however it is that you want to define it. And the question of, is this thing that I'm supposed to be creating and s- selling or uh, however you want to put it in the transactional manner... Is this enough? I think this question remains central to the academic world no matter what, no mm-hmm. matter what level you're at. Yeah. You certainly develop better skills to deal with it, to be able to talk to people, to identify that this you're not alone in this. But the fact that you're not alone in it is just one way to uh, to, to take perspective on it. The fact that you feel that you're never enough doesn't necessarily ever change. Because the reality is... You never are enough in this undefined um, spectrum. Can I say something? Please, sorry.
2: (laughs) No, but I really like, actually, that's also one thing when I was thinking today about like what I would like to say in this podcast is actually that I think for me, because I do think, like, and I speak for the both of us, that in the beginning we had a bit more struggles with many things than we do now. And I think for me, one really important thing is that like getting my self-esteem out of other sources um, than just academic and which in the research master, for example, I didn't have any other time for anything else. So then that's not possible. Then you take all of your self-esteem out of there, too. And also you, of course, are also a good student. So that's working most of the times. But like in the PhD, I really needed to learn to not do that and to build again my Life outside of <laughs> of university, and that really helps to to build a sense of self and a sense of identity outside of you as a scientist. And I do like I remember still I was in a research master. I talked to a study advisor, and uh, he told me he said like, "Ah, oh Nina, the most interesting academics are those that have other hobbies than <laughs> than science." And I kind of it stuck with me.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, indeed, I was uh, thinking in a similar direction when I thought about uh, what well being is and especially this distinction from, uh, well, bad mental health towards well-being, Um, that, yeah, when you want to be a successful, happy researcher, you need to also do other things to bolster your well-being and to be able to think creatively and to be able to solve complex problems. You need to take care of yourself, of your physical health and mental health as well. I think for that you need to diversify a little bit. Yeah. So
2: also just to gain distance from, yeah. From, for example, I mean, how many times did we, uh, have we written a paper and we thought it's ready and then we looked at it two weeks later and we're like, oh, now I see what it really needs or something, mm-hmm. right? Or like solving a problem and you, I don't know, after a couple of days you suddenly come up with something while you're on a walk.
3: Yeah, Yeah. I actually solve most difficult problems while uh, walking with my dog <laughs> most of the times, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was I was thinking because in the the same report, I'll refer to report a lot, actually, (laughs) because that's where a lot of the students or the candidates, I should say, expressed what they were dissatisfied with and sometimes also what they were satisfied with. And some of them mentioned that as specifically international uh, candidates, they found it a bit more difficult to find, yeah, time or space for other things outside of academia because they don't feel, for example, as connected to. The country or their fel- their colleagues, um, I think I just wanted to touch on that the the importance of having community, and I can imagine it might be different for different kinds of PhD candidates. I don't know if you know many Dutch candidates, for example, or if it's mostly international candidates, but I can imagine it's quite different depending on your situation.
3: Um. Yeah. So. I think important to know is that both of us have done our studies here in the same city so i think i'm living here for eight years now so when i started my phd i had my network here which helped tremendously i had a, a, a friend network but also a p- small professional network as well um and yeah it it helped um and i of course also started the phd during COVID, and even though i had this network here it still hit hard, so there I yeah I realized that it is actually really really important to have this community, and especially when starting up your PhD, uh, you have a lot of these questions where you feel oh maybe it's a stupid question that you wanna uh, be able to ask a colleague who's sitting uh, next to you, yeah. So that uh, that was missing a lot, um, yeah and. Uh, for me uh, personally, you asked about Dutch um, uh, colleagues, yeah. In the sociology department, they actually uh, have these year groups. So uh, you start with a group of other PhDs that are at the same stage uh, as you are, and you have uh, big offices where you share it with, uh, like, some somewhere in between four and eight PhDs. I think the cohort that starts now is ten. And then uh, you go through these steps together. And that really helps tremendously uh, mm. to have this, well, group.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and you would say this is different for the international candidates? No. Broadly?
3: In oh. in sociology, it's actually the same uh, for everyone. Okay. And that's, um, yeah, that's really nice. But I know, for example, in uh, s- psychology... Or in in the methods and statistics department, uh, by definition, people have offices with two, three people, just because of the rooms. (laughs) Um, uh, But also maybe the way um, their graduate training is set up, and then it can become a lot more lonely uh, quickly. I don't know, Nina. Maybe how's it in your department?
2: For me, it was a bit different. I started also alone. So and also I did have this because like I was also very embedded in international psychology community and then I started so my PhD is at Educational Sciences not that I do anything with Educational Sciences but (laughs) that's just how it goes sometimes Um, and they are Dutch like everybody at that moment everybody there was Dutch which was great for my Dutch so I got fluent very quickly before I was still um, not so good so And I see, and they organized a mentor for me, which was also great. So it was a PhD student that's a bit further along who explained to me things, but I also didn't need so much explanation, I think. But I see this because now we have more international ones also that come for their PhD and that do not speak Dutch. And that is, I think, socially quite a challenge. Um, Yeah, I mean, our department is very open and if, a non Dutch speaker is there, they will switch to english and but it's some i mean we we know this feeling still from before very well I think if you're the only non Dutch speaker and then um I don't know, and then you're maybe everybody talks English to you, but then as soon as they turn to the other person, they start in Dutch again um which does make you feeling excluded and in the beginning, I remember still when I came to this department i because my Dutch was very not so good, like (laughs) very broken. So um, I did feel excluded, Um, but that's only the language. And I know, but the language is important. And I know that in other departments, um, this is even worse, like where heads of departments actually refuse talking English also in meetings where English people are present or English speaking people are present. So um, yeah, and also what I want to say on that note, even though I feel... Very integrated, really, I think, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) Um, but I have, like, I'm I'm really thinking very, very hard here, but I don't think I have more than five Dutch friends, Mm -hmm. and I'm here for nine years.
0: No, I think it's fair to say um, that the the intersection of um, a fairly unique position, which is to be an academic and to be doing a PhD in combination with being um, uh, uh, not local. I I hesitate to even say international because I think this is also the case for uh, uh, perhaps Dutch PhD candidates who come from different parts of the country or who have uh, moved here from um, uh, or who were born in a different country to bu- Dutch parents and returned here at a later stage I think it's important to, to note that yeah. given that this is already a position that has a lot of challenges any kind of intersection with other yeah. um, um, uh, difficulties is going to just amplify things yeah quite and, then a lot.
2: and then if you like I don't know Marie and I had a lot of talks about the healthcare system here. <laughs> like, for example, something like that. There's just coming a lot of challenges, which are uh, that you don't understand how things work here. And I can yeah. imagine if you come here for your PhD from a country where things work very differently. That's really that's adding to your workload and to your stress levels. And some of these things also have existential fears involved.
3: So I mean, finding housing is the is the housing, first yeah. challenge here, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, figuring out healthcare and for um, scholarship PhDs exactly. uh, often um, they don't even have access to Dutch healthcare because of the position they're in mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: talking about scholarship PhDs I mean we didn't start talking about this yet or we wanted to because there is also people that receive significantly less money maybe we're going to talk about this more but then actually like financial fears come mm-hmm. into this too which is
0: yeah, yeah insecurity about um your standing in your community and your um, your financial security and your social security and your mental health security—all of these things are uh, are amplified as you intersect with uh, more of these categories. So, is this h- how does the community support this, or how should the community support this, and at which level, and who are the community? I know this is a very difficult question it is Um. such a difficult
2: question Mm -hmm. like i like i also thought about this when i read it and you also like the other phd candidates for example i really i don't think i have i mean i do have contact to other phd students but then mainly to the ones that i that are my friends and of course in the office we talk but it's not yeah like i mean there's the phd council marie was also a member of that (laughs) (laughs) and they organize events also like also social gatherings and as much as I love these gatherings and they're very nice and recreational, I'm not sure how much support this gave me.
3: Yeah, I do realize now that we talk about it what a nice department, the sociology department, actually is in this regard, because somehow they uh, managed very well to create uh, this PhD community. So we um, have, well, semi-regular uh, social events that just everybody is invited to, and uh, because of these big offices we frequently talk when we're at work about all kinds of issues that we're encountering but what uh, is lacking a little bit is the connection to other staff members maybe so while the PhD community there is, is good as it was uh, for me also in the PhD council so they are the being part of the council actually gave me a community as well rather than uh, participating in the events the council organizes cool. um so that's maybe a good thing for for phds um to co- that that phds also just join these boards sometimes to connect with other uh, phd students as well yeah
1: that's okay <laughs> i was wondering because yeah. i actually learned that a lot of the times the, the feeling is that no one has the time which isn't necessarily a good excuse or, or what not but that the idea is oh as a PhD candidate, I'm very busy, but my supervisor is also very busy. Everyone I- on the team is very busy. So to organize anything more to promote a community is a bit difficult. D- do you think that's a okay statement or should do you feel like there should be more room like to still do more, actually? Uh,
3: I do think there's always room to do something. So uh-huh. um, the lab group of my daily supervisor, for example, we uh, are all loosely connected because uh, like me I'm sitting in the sociology department others are in the statistics department but still we have uh, an online uh, workspace together on Slack where Even if it's just that one person sometimes posts a funny meme in uh, a (laughs) channel there, uh, it does help, and this doesn't really take a lot of time. But here again, my supervisor uh, set the precedence there and created this channel and actively encouraged us to reach out to each other and talk to each other independently of her as well. So I do think um, it doesn't need big actions. These small things and this um, atmosphere that the supervisor creates or the maybe the other staff members create, uh, can have a big impact there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I actually also joined a lab group, which is not connected <laughs> to my supervisors, but just because <laughs> it was like they didn't have a lab group, and he was like, yeah, well, you can join other PhD groups maybe, <laughs> which also really helped. I didn't think about that yet, but it really helps to just be knowing what other people are doing and are busy with every week. yeah.
1: And on supervision or supervisors, because we've kind of talked about it so far, Mm -hmm. but that was maybe the biggest takeaway from the report that I've been talking about a lot. There were maybe 70 comments of 200 um, students that filled it out, Um, the the specific part of the report that I was busy with, where they, they mentioned that, we really feel the supervision is lacking. And this is, of course, university-wide. So uh, y- we can't say it's particular to any of our faculties or, or whatnot. But if we're talking about supervision, do you think it's the biggest part of that support? How important is it that you have a good relationship and a well-functioning supervisor as a PhD candidate?
2: It's
3: essential. It's yeah. it's, it's really the most uh,
2: important part, I think, almost.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Uh, uh, well, good supervision can can really help you uh, uh, completing your PhD, and bad supervision, no matter how much work you put in, uh, can really bring you to quit your PhD or or, or suffer tremendously before you do so. Yes, and yep. I've
2: heard cases of that where people sw- or like changed the supervisors after five years because basically, yeah, it just mm-hmm. didn't work.
1: But do you think it's something innate, like that you just? are or are not a good supervisor? Or do you think it's a trend? Can you be mm. trained to be a better supervisor? Because that was one thing they mentioned, that like they feel the, the the university maybe could do more to make sure that these supervisors are more equipped to be supervisors. But some others felt like, no, we just feel like this person is just not, up, you know, equipped for this job.
2: So difficult.
3: <laughs> of yeah. course, there is a certain element of um, you need to match, but like... Also, when you start your PhD, you, you need to um, meet with the supervisors and see if it matches on a personal level. If this is a uh, somebody that you want to be dependent on for four years and if you uh, can, can talk well and work well together. Um, but independently of that, I think there are certainly things that you uh, can learn. Like you can learn how to teach, so you can also learn how to supervise. I just think... Um, there hasn't been that much formal training on it yet.
2: I don't uh, know about this. Do you know about this? Yeah,
3: I, n- I know that there's now uh, a course that they started. So okay. every every incoming um, uh, assistant professor is, I think, encouraged oh to no. uh, complete this um, MOOC course. But mm. uh, it's not, I don't think it's mandatory. And it's certainly not mandatory for people who've been supervising for years and maybe also badly supervising oh. for years.
0: It really depends on the faculty, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. Different faculties have different uh, rules or so different guidelines, and um, I- indeed, the professionalization of PhD supervision is changing. Um, and uh, I- indeed, it it's it's a very good thing if it's done well, and it can be a very bad thing if it's done poorly because it can fail to address the matter and still increase the amount of workload and bureaucracy and administration without actually changing much. Um, But I reserve judgment. I don't have anything to say about the current program, at least um, um, in the way it's running. Um, Do you have any distinctive qualities that you think a good um, supervisor exhibits in her or his work? Do you have any advice? Maybe I should say, is there um, something um, e- either for prospective PhD students on what to look out for in terms of these are good signs, mm-hmm. or um, what you would advise uh, PhD students is very helpful. Uh, sorry, PhD supervisors is very helpful for their their students.
2: I think from I, I do think. I mean, we touched upon the personal connection a little bit, and I do think the personal connection is the most important thing, and that you just. Um, feel comfortable in saying things and also saying when things did not go well I can share a little bit I had in the beginning when I was also I, I mean I was way more insecure back then and then I had I got also feedback on something which then and I did a lot of work and then in the end um I needed to redo the work because it was not good, <laughs> but I did check with my supervisors, right? So and I was really angry back then because I was, I remember, like, yeah, I don't know, you check this, like you are, you are supposed to, <laughs> I don't know, save me from making mistakes, which was also a bit naive um, in retrospect, but. Um, if I I don't know, and I remember still that I didn't say this for so long that I was disappointed with them because I was insecure. In the end when I said this they reacted super lovely and they were like, No, Nina, you should always say it straight away because like it's important and we need the feedback and we're also just people and we make mistakes and it was not even a mistake, it was just a bit quickly read I guess. But um So is yeah. this
0: about clarifying expectations and work yeah. structures as in um, it's about,
2: yeah it's about clarifying expectations it's about and uh, it's mainly about communication really and being able to openly communicate and also yeah and also th- but also the expectations is a very good one because my main supervisor i, I don't i don't want to say out, outdated numbers but she has more than P- 10 phd students right now at least so um of course like it's it's these are so many people you cannot be f- and I think she's uh, there for me a lot, so very thankful. And my other supervisor, my daily supervisor, is there for me a lot too. But also, like again, on a personal level, you know, I can if I have a question about um, about my insurance problems, <laughs> mm. I can ask them too. And I think that is very important, especially also again for internationals, that um, you kind of offer them also to you know to be kind of like your mentor. That is, and I think maybe that's my advice: look for a mentor.
1: Because hmm. do you feel do you feel like generally when you talk to other PhD candidates that the expectations, the conditions, are discussed heavily or, or not? Because listening to you now, I feel like it, it's maybe not as common as I would think as someone looking from the outside in. I
2: don't think it's very like I don't know. I think at our faculty maybe it's also more common than in other faculties. But I I know people who see their supervisors once a month for an hour and then sometimes it gets canceled. So Mm. then they see their supervisors like nine times a year. And I do see my supervisors, like both of them once a week and my daily supervisor almost daily. So that's so different.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking because you said it's, it's very important to see if you have that personal connection with the supervisor. But some people have talked to, and that's why I say some people, because this could not be the experience of everyone at the university. Felt like there wasn't there wasn't too much choice in terms of who could be their supervisor, and so I feel like they didn't have that luxury. And I guess going back into advising, maybe prospective PhD candidates or ones you know looking, yeah, basically the ones looking to do it. If you do come across that one supervisor and it's just not clicking, how how hard is it to then say? N- no, I'm not going to do this, while you're actually very passionate about the research that you want to do in this field. I, I can imagine that can be quite difficult, given the constraints of, yeah, how available supervisors are at the university.
3: Yeah, of course, there are limited positions, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, uh, it's rarely the case that you walk around and pick a supervisor that you want to work with, and then uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, that can happen, of course, but then keep in mind it is never just one supervisor that you're Mm -hmm. having. I think everywhere there's now the four-eye principle so that you will have two supervisors. So just make sure that the team uh, works well for you. So maybe the promoter is a bit less available and uh, uh, you click a little bit less, but then that at least the daily supervisor can be somebody that you feel comfortable talking about everything with. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and we should also acknowledge that... um, I, this kind of combination works really well because uh, uh, a supervisor who is unavailable because they are very busy, because they are in um, they have a lot of PhD students, because they have a lot of projects, also means that they bring to, with them uh, a strong network that can be beneficial, but uh, perhaps not very good at having regular or frequent contact, and therefore a combination of a daily supervisor who is available and um, another promoter who who brings different strengths is a valuable thing. Choosing a good team is, um, is I think, my yeah. advice and consider taking advice from various people during that moment and in terms of building, actually, as a PhD student, maybe think of it in terms of building a team, building a team with different resources, with different skills, with different um, um, yeah availabilities. Yeah. And I think that helps a lot. Yeah, mm.
3: and... <laughs> And maybe talking to other uh, PhD. I to say exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah, PhD students who've been supervised by the same person, if if it's somehow possible to arrange that, yeah, it e- can help.
2: Especially, also, mm-hmm. I mean, we had the luxury of also choosing our supervisors because we did this, and um, but like, especially if you're not at the university, you're coming to a new university. I mean, you can never know how your supervisors personally. So then it might be especially helpful to try to contact other PhDs.
1: Okay, I wanted to, heading towards the end, talk a bit more about the resources that are um, available to PhD students, candidates, when it comes to taking care of their well-being, their mental health, that could also be physical health, different things that contribute to their well-being. Um, Because I think when I think of this episode, I I, I would really like people who are thinking to become PhD candidates. I, I would like them to listen to this and think, okay, this is good to know. What can I take from this? Um, I, w- I wanted to talk about the resources available, at least according to, to what you've experienced, because there were some students, a good amount of students, who felt like the resources were there, but they could not find them. They felt it wasn't clear enough how to find those resources at the university. Um, some Some others felt, no, it was right there. But I just wanted to touch on that. Do you feel looking at yourself and looking at how in your conversations with others, other PSD candidates that, w- that, that those resources are there uh, readily available is communicated properly. Uh, how do, how do you feel about the state of that? I would say.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I think you, you need to come to the resources rather than the resources coming to you. <laughs>
3: mm. Yeah. And I, I would agree with the sentiment of, there are a lot of resources yeah. out there. Me too. Um, There are also a lot of courses that you can follow as a PhD candidate. Um, Career perspective series, um, courses on how to teach, uh, courses on time management, courses on anything. But um, what's really important there is to figure out what it it is exactly that you need. And I'm not sure if anybody besides you and your supervisor can help you with that. So it's a lot about priority setting and, and, and identifying like where, where it goes wrong if something goes wrong. And then there are, of course, also offers for more personal help, so um, counselors. Um, that is, however, a little bit difficult. So if you are a scholarship PhD, then you fall under the definition of a student. So you do not technically fall under the PhD counsellors but the student counsellors and that's um, well when you're already at the point that you would need help like this then maybe that's not the moment that you want to have to deal with these bureaucratic Mm. issues and figuring out where to actually write the email to Um, so I think that is something that could be improved on Mm, yeah do you have something to add Nina?
2: Yeah. um, I want to add that, okay, like, okay, yeah, we have like these R&O meetings, which are uh, where you actually talk to your supervisors about, oh, yeah, what are the skills that you could learn? And and I really appreciate that. And then... These
0: are the annual review yeah. meetings, just to, to yeah. clarify.
2: Exactly. So every staff member and also every scholarship PhD <laughs> <laughs> student has them. Um, and, but like, I... would and my supervisors, maybe also your supervisors, are very good to talk to about this. I'm not sure if all of the supervisors are. But what I want to point out, which really upsets me, is that you need to sign up for the email lists yourself. Mm-hmm. So um, for the PhD council, as who offers these courses, as well as for Gopher, who also is like the Groninger um, PhD organization for educational and recreational activities, mm-hmm. um, you need to sign up for these mailing lists. And if you don't don't know that these mailing lists exist, th- you don't get these emails. And I think there's also, Marie, you know more about the PhD Council emails. There's also some PhD Council emails that just reach you as a PhD student. No, right? You need to sign up.
3: So uh, as of recently, the PhD Council sends out emails directly to candidates and candidates do not need to sign up anymore. Ah,
2: that's a great improvement. <laughs> okay. That was... Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, then this is better now, I guess. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that was, like, that's what I also mean. Like You really do need to look for the resources. Yeah. Yeah. But the uh, resources are there. And I also really want to stress that, that there's a wide range of... like you, you even have workshops about imposter syndrome. You have workshops about managing your supervisors. You have workshops about um, workload management, planning. You even have writing support groups and these kind of things. Um, if they're so helpful or not, that's another thing, but yeah
0: i'm curious I'm curious whether that you think this is a good thing
2: <laughs> the resources I'm not sh- yeah it's so yeah.
0: maybe I can put uh, put my question in some perspective it's it's not entirely clear to me whether the pandemic from the last few years was the cause or the catalyst or the the, 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 the moderator of this mm-hmm. but my understanding or my personal experience of uh, both What's happening in my personal and professional life, but also what's happening in the professional and personal lives of a lot of people around me, from a young age to a much uh, older age, is that there's just too much. There's constantly too much. There's just too much of everything. The degree of input that we experience in our daily life almost constantly, the amount of resources, the the endlessness of the world that is available to us essentially at any given time has changed so incredibly in the last you know <laughs> you can say 5 10 15 30 40 years you can go backwards and backwards but certainly it seems to be accelerating to the degree that um, it's uh, it's it's overwhelming it's it's it, it without without the ability to set emotional psychological professional Boundaries, distance between things, between you know, on a basic level, between your work time and your personal life, uh, your personal time, between your um, uh, uh, personal career development and your person, your obligations as a PhD student. Any kind of boundary, it's it's becoming um, more and more difficult, and uh, it it makes me wonder very frequently whether the solution is to throw more resources at it or to just pop the bubble of expectations I see this very often talked about okay how do we make things more efficient so that we can do more with less how about we just do less (laughs) with less or how about we just and this interacts with what we talked about earlier this arms race the the expectations are invariably increasing and I, I don't know whether this is something that the individual can do an awful lot about these are communal expectations. These are communal changes that are happening—societal changes, professional changes—and personally, it worries me. I've been—I've been, I've been uh, in a bit of um, I do don't want to say a state, but it's been—it's been on my mind for the last few years that everybody seems on the limit of their abilities.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I I agree with um, that. It is too much, also with these courses because we keep getting. Newsletter after newsletter after newsletter about things when you signed up for them. (laughs) Um, And uh, at some point you start not even opening them and maybe you participate in one or two of these courses and maybe you're unlucky and you participate in one that is not particularly useful to you. And then, um, well, you start to think, okay, these courses generally are not so useful so I rather focus on something else because there is so much you can do in your PhD time. Um, yeah, that you then disengage from these things because they're also not necessarily the things that are incentivized.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing a master's program at the moment, and I if I compare like the the beginning of the year, like what the the coordinator of the program communicated to us in the introduction meeting versus a few years ago when I started the ma- the bachelor program, I feel like that was very different. In terms of, I think I might not look at every newsletter and everything, but I really remember that first presentation. That that felt at least, and talking to other students around me, that felt like, oh, this is very important to know. Which isn't, of, of course, there's more that's important to know, but I always think personally that such moments are very important. So it was it was communicated to us at the beginning of this year that, hey, if you're having issues, please go to the study advisor. Which sounds so simple, but when I started my bachelor program here that was not communicated or very shortly communicated and everything else was highlighted and that already gave me the the impression that like oh they're really valuing this more so I I sometimes wonder if if we we pick and choose where to spread information we might have a Hmm. we might find more success because a newsletter might not be read but that first conversation with your supervisor or just, just thinking along uh, the lines of what we're talking about. But I wonder if that's maybe the better solution because indeed it is too much. So maybe picking and choosing the best points to do so might be the best option.
2: There is also an introductory event for PhD students. Hmm. It, I think it takes place two to five times a year. I don't, uh, every I don't know how much it takes place, but it does take place and everybody also is... Uh, or should take take part in them? Marie looks like she didn't. <laughs> no, you probably did, but the thing no, is, no, I
3: did. I didn't because I started during a time when. It was really inconvenient, and then all the meetings were already full. And by the time there was uh, an open slot in one of these meetings, I was so far along with my PhD <laughs> that I was like, "I don't need but an introduction." But actually, at it. my
2: introductory meeting, there were also PhDs who were all, like, "Yeah, I'm I'm ten months along, and I'm okay, I was actually two months along." Yeah, but wha- uh, for me, it was in just in the times of COVID, and I feel like I had so many online meetings <laughs> that I at least did not have this momentum of, "Oh, there is so many rooms," re- so I, w- I more had. Yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) I did not take so much. So this is more
1: common, actually, that there might be students who don't even have that beginning talk or go to these meetings at all.
3: Yeah, but I wasn't missing it because my supervisors were very Mm. proactive in informing me about everything that's crucial. And also uh, my department is very proactive in these things. We have this PhD guide, which is essentially a long PDF, Mm. but very well organized with like hyperlinks on the first page. directing you to each topic um, yeah. and it's regularly updated so anything that i wonder about like is it how do i reimburse my travel to this conference at this moment or uh, to who do i contact for um, issues with my computer i can find it in this document and uh, yeah something exactly. like this is really essential so yep. and i would i would say um, every department should have it
2: yeah yeah but maybe also back to what uh, Tassos was saying about this being overwhelmed by so many things I like yeah sometimes also with these courses i wonder whether they really reach the right people because i feel mm. like if people are really getting really stressed and are maybe on the verge of a burnout or something i don't think these people think that they have time for a mm. <laughs> stress management course but that is something that I haven't made up my mind, like how you could do this better.
3: Well, I think that's again the supervisor there stepping in because in theory supervisors should see their PhD regularly, mm. right? I would say maybe once a week or every two weeks. Um and then ask how are you doing? And maybe picking up on stress signals of the PhD and then well yeah. encouraging Throwing the person in the to right direction take some time off to maybe take this course or well, start an honest conversation about how the person is doing yeah
1: yeah i, I could imagine just asking how, the, how they're doing could end in a very standard answer but i i think asking the question is a big step for sure
0: malcolm i've been seeing you sitting next to a book for the last yeah. hour <laughs> while we're recording this. Is this a valuable research, uh, resource? Resource. I'll read out the title. It's "Managing Your Mental Health During Your PhD" by Zoe Ayers. Um, is this a recommended resource? Is this something that uh, we should add to the to the description of this podcast episode? Yeah, I was I was going to do that. Indeed, I was okay. going to end with it.
1: <laughs> but no, I, I someone. Um, yeah, they. I, w- I borrowed this from someone, a uh, PhD student, um, and it's been very helpful in terms of like getting a, a, a big get better ideas to topics when it comes to managing your mental health. Um, I haven't read all of it, but I've spoken to a few PhD students who are very, uh, very um, big on it, so I would recommend it. It's by Zoe Ayres, I think. Yeah, I don't know how you pronounce the name
0: to be yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll include a link in the description so that you can have a look at that. Yeah.
1: Well, I think we've discussed a lot today, and I think uh, I it would be a good idea to close off by maybe speaking directly to to those who are PhD candidates or students or are planning to become them. I, I guess I would, I would pose the question, what would you say to someone thinking about becoming a PhD candidate in terms of their mental health, but maybe other things as well that also indirectly tie into their mental health or well-being eventually? Like what would, you, what would be your message to them?
3: To be honest, I think the most beneficial thing for my mental health that I learned during the, the last two and a half years was um, to focus on things outside of research as well. Yeah. And to, like what Nina said uh, before, have hobbies. Um, don't get lost in this passion for research. Yeah. There's always more that you can do. There are always more resources. There are always more courses. There's always another research project that you can start. Um, really prioritize on what um, gives you the most. Gives you in terms of happiness or in terms of... Th- sometimes you also need to do things um, to take that next career step. So sometimes it is just smart to get some teaching experience or to visit that conference even though it may not be the most fun thing, but really set clear priorities and um, more is not always better. Mm, Thank you. Mm. And Nina? Yeah. um, Also,
2: like maybe thinking about how I was before my PhD and um, also I said this before that I came from the research master and just like kind of slid into this PhD. Um, And I'm... I want to say that I'm really happy and I'm very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would really encourage myself to, which I actually did back then. I actually, because it was COVID times and I didn't feel so well. So I t- got went to Austria for half a year <laughs> to be completely out of, out of Groningen, out Many of people, academia. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I would really encourage people to do that and to really think about, do you really want to do this? Because, I mean, it's it's really great, but it is It is challenging and it is challenging for your self esteem, for your self image, um, and of course, also in terms of work and what is expected from you. It is quite challenging. So um, take a step back. But also, I would advise people to, and this sounds so stupid when I say it, but just to relax (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of, because like I also thought, like when I applied for this position, I was like, oh, this is kind of, you have such a tunnel vision of this is the only, opportunity. And like, for example, I, everybody out of the research master that wanted to do a PhD did get a PhD eventually. Meaning also that, for example, if you're in a, um, in a, if you're in an interview and you, for example, do not have a good click with the supervisors, right? Then, (laughs) then maybe reconsider, like there's going to be another opportunity. And if, things don't work in the beginning, also, like, you know, then relax, kind of, and it sounds so stupid, but it, yeah, it's always like, you know, let it go, relax, it's like the easiest and the hardest thing at the same time, I think.
3: Yeah, indeed, and there is is this go, no-go moment in your PhD, and a lot of uh, PhDs are really afraid of it, because we view it as a moment where supervisors could say no-go to you, but actually... It is also a really good moment to reflect for yourself. Yeah. Do I want to still continue this? So yeah. yeah.
2: And it's really hard in a because it is especially in the beginning so much work to do to actually take this time to reflect and to be like you know like I mean that's what we did with the block to give us uh, we wanted to give us basically a space to reflect on what we're doing and I think that's so important that people take the time and the space to be like yeah is this what I want to do because it is not. It shouldn't be a whole identity it shouldn't be you know like oh i don't know if this doesn't work out (laughs) i don't know i'm devastated or something Hmm.
1: yeah yeah do you have any any words you'd like to share on the topic i know you also a phd student a number of Mm -hmm. years ago and i know listening to everyone here you might it might be different than your experience but is there anything you would say to a prospective phd candidate um
0: yeah um I think I will reinforce everything that uh, Maria and Nina have said so far. I I especially resonate with the idea of finding joy in what you do, and I think this sounds somewhat superficial, as you said, Nina, also the idea of relaxing into things, but I think what we mean by this is to remember the 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 purpose of the work that you do remember why this is happening it's not for the bureaucracy it's not for the forums it's not because there's a meeting it's not because there's a training it's not because there's a credit but because there's valuable work somewhere behind it there's intrinsic motivation there's intrinsic interest in discovering knowledge and communicating knowledge and um that it is frustrating and i think this gives a lot of perspective um at times and surround yourself with people who remind you of this on a regular basis i think alongside with this the development of good habits is something frequently ignored both in the um, in the supervisory relationship but also in the in the personal life of a phd candidate or an academic in general and what i mean by good habits are on the on the supervisory relationship, I think one of the most fundamental things that uh, I, I can't imagine uh, supervising a PhD project or doing a PhD project without is very clear, shared acknowledgement of the decisions that are being made at any given point, how they're being made, what their purpose is, essentially some kind of lab personal lab notebook where the communication with your supervisor and your personal work is documented clearly so that agreements are very clear so that there's no ambiguity on these agreements there's no tension in the future about these agreements and there's a sense of security about what is happening communication is very very important it's also very difficult at times unless you have as you both said very a very good click from the beginning but it's something that can be worked on there are basic principles about communication that you can uh, establish in a relationship in terms of expectations and in terms of what is necessary it's not always easy but it's very important and i think good boundaries stepping away from the the endlessness of you know social media and uh, meetings and uh, activities and podcasts that you can subscribe to uh, and all of this, I think it's a it's a good thing to step away from it and um, uh, find some quiet space on a regular basis. Yeah,
1: I think most of what I, I wanted to say was actually already communicated. I was going to actually say th- at the end that you should really listen to yourself when if you see that your boundaries are being crossed or that you're reaching a limit. I, I, there are so many pressures, but I can speak from experience in saying that not listening to that, f- that feeling can be maybe more damaging long term. So keep in mind what your boundaries are and um, look if the situation suits you at every point. That's something I say to not only um, students, but anyone who, when, when I'm talking about mental health or well-being personally. Um, but yeah, this was this episode. I wanted to thank our gues- I want to thank our guests for, for being here today. Uh, this was my last episode, so I'm very happy to have been able to share um, this platform with you today. I wanted to thank Tassos for this great opportunity. It's been very, yeah, it's been very inspiring. Also, I've learned a lot by sitting here and talking to multiple guests. And I really, I really hope that this reaches more and more people because I think it can help a lot of people in their situations here at the the the, the, the university and beyond. So um, thank you, Tassos.
0: Um, yeah, thank you. Also, Malcolm, I, I said so in the beginning too, it's a, uh, it's your last episode here, and it's been a it's been a g- uh, great joy for me to talk to you also or talk with you about a lot of different matters uh, relating to higher education in this in the past six months. Um, Nina Marie, thank you for. I want to say starting this conversation with us. It's yeah. a, it's such a big topic. It's uh, I feel like I've been talking about about this for the last twenty years since I uh, left my PhD pro- uh, program and supervised PhD projects i know this is i know we just touched upon a lot of these topics i know we haven't resolved any of them i don't think uh, we set out to do something like this but i appreciate creating a space in which some of these thoughts can be shared more openly Um, finding community seems very difficult and still remains very valuable so thank you both for for being on degrees of freedom today
3: Thank you so much. That was really nice. Thanks for (laughs) inviting us. Of
0: course. And thank you to our listeners. This was the last episode of Season 2. No cliffhangers. Next, well, actually, maybe a cliffhanger. I should say that Degrees of Freedom will be changing in some ways next year. Some of these changes are clear to me, but uh, I want to tell you what they are yet. Some of these changes are not entirely clear to me, so I will certainly not tell you anything about them. But I look forward to being around this table again in September to talk about more issues that relate to higher education. There's certainly a lot to talk about. I hope, uh, I hope you're going to be there with us. Thank you. This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.